Hey, Z-Pack, it's Dr. Z. Welcome to the Z-Dog MD Show. It's the crack of dawn here on the Pacific Coast, and I have with me returning again for a discussion on vaccine development for COVID, a guy who actually develops vaccine. He's the co-inventor of the rotavirus vaccine, professor of pediatrics at Children's Hospital of Philadelphia, Dr. Paul Offit. Welcome back, brother. Good to see you. Thanks, Z-Dog. Happy to be back. Oh, man. All right, let's just dive into it. What is going on with... So you have politicians, you have scientists, you have everybody talking about, hey, how are we going to develop this vaccine? Because we'll never get off these lockdowns and these rotating re-outbreaks and all of that, even if we get it under control, if we don't develop a definitive strategy, which in their mind is a vaccine. Walk us through this. What what do we expect here and what are the pitfalls? All right, so, so the best way to develop herd immunity so that everybody in the population can be confident or a critical number can be confident that this virus isn't going to be spread, spread is with a vaccine. I mean, with a vaccine, we were able to eliminate measles from our country. So that's the best way. Um, and when Tony Fauci, Dr. Tony Fauci, stands in front of the, um, on that podium and says to the country, um, I think we could do this as early as 12 to 18 months. That's surprisingly fast. Uh, you have an average length of time to go from um, initial research to having a vial of vaccine that's distributed to the country is on average about 20 years. I mean, mm -hmm. our vaccine took 26 years, a little long. But you wow. know, the notion that, I, that the fastest vaccine I think we ever made was the mumps vaccine, where that virus was isolated in 1963 and was a vaccine in 1967. That was oh. amazingly fast. Four years still, yeah. Four years still. So, um, so that's it. The 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 issue is: is it possible to develop a vaccine that quickly? And I think it would be fun actually to talk about what it takes to make a vaccine and what the pitfalls are. Let, let's do that. And I want to ask this question. So people talk about, oh, HPV vaccine was developed too fast and it's too new and we don't know anything about it. How long did it take to develop, say, HPV vaccine? And what was the process of, of even testing that as an illustration? Well, if you count the research, it yeah. took more than 20 years. Wow. Uh, if you count just the, just the research of development, that vaccine was tested in 30,000 people for seven years before it was ever licensed. So wow. that was just that vaccine. Why is it important to do that? Because, uh, you know, with other medicines and stuff, it may not take as long, small molecules, different drugs. I mean, it can take a long time, but why are vaccines, why are we so careful with that? I think because we give them to healthy people. I think therefore they have to be held to a, a very high standard of safety. I think people are willing to accept certain safety issues when they're sick, but they're not when they're well. And so that's the reason you're giving these to healthy children. And 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 are we worried now that because, uh, and this is just to frame what you're gonna tell us about vaccine development, are you worried now that people are so scared of this coronavirus and what it's doing and our perception of it, that they're gonna rush into this and, 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 and sign up for getting a vaccine that uh, may have been rushed? Well, yes, I think when people are terrified and they're terrified, we tend to have this break the glass mentality. And that break the glass mentality may mean that we're cutting certain corners, that we're not doing animal model testing, that we're not doing extensive so-called phase one or phase two testing where you do thousands of people looking for issues of safety and making sure that you get a good immune response before you even get to the efficacy trial. Yes, I worry that we um, might do this too quickly and miss things. Uh, you know, it, it's the the, the, the will is, it's a good one. We want to try and save people's lives. That's great. But, you know, you want to make sure that you do it the right way. That, it concerns me a little bit. Yeah. So, okay. So walk us through vaccine development. So people understand what's involved in a typical vaccine development, and then we can uh, kind of apply it to COVID and coronavirus, SARS-2 okay, coronavirus. So, so I think, I think, you know, 
that you can make a vaccine if natural infection protects against disease associated with reinfection, which is usually true, right? I mean, I was a child of the 50s, I had measles, therefore I can be comfortable that I will be protected against measles for the rest of my life. But there are some diseases where natural infection doesn't protect against reinfection. Gonorrhea is a disease you can get over and over huh. again. Tell me about it, Paul. I mean, <laughs> wait, what? <laughs> I don't have to tell you that. Ah, uh, yes. And then your know, strep throat is a disease you can get over and over again. When you see that, you know that it's going to be, you're going to have trouble making a vaccine. I think that's not going to be true here based on studies that were done really decades ago with human coronaviruses. So there are four human coronaviruses that have been circulating in the United States at least since the 1960s when they were first identified. We can assume it's longer than that. Mm. There was a study done a couple decades ago where they took experimental volunteers, people. They inoculated them with one of the types of human coronavirus. And then a year later, they challenged them with the same type to answer the question, were they protected? And the answer was yes. So I think you can be protected for at least a year and probably years uh, with this having been infected with this virus, assuming the virus doesn't mutate. And all the evidence to date is that it doesn't mutate. So I think I think we can make a vaccine. That's good. Okay, so, so the evidence is that it does not mutate, what kind of evidence is that? Like, how are we seeing that? How do we determine that? Right, so, so I mean, it's a single-stranded RNA virus. So therefore, like all single-stranded RNA viruses, its replication isn't highly faithful. But measles is a single-stranded RNA virus that just has one serotype. Mumps, same thing. Rubella, same thing. So um, you can have a single-stranded RNA virus like this one that still has only one serotype. The way we know that is we are isolating these strains and seeing whether or not they're critically different, meaning that they, they're, uh -huh. they although there are sequence differences, the question is, do those sequence differences add up to a different serotype? Mm. Polio, polio has three serotypes. Mm. Human papillomavirus vaccine has many serotypes. Mm. Um, so it's, it's you just, just uh, the, the important thing is to make sure you include all the serotypes in the vaccine. It looks like for, for this particular SARS-CoV-2, it's only one serotype. That's good too. Got it, got it. And so because you have only one serotype and that's the effective immune responses to the serotype, you, the, the, the promise for a vaccine is actually pretty good because you don't have to, again, either you include a bunch of different serotypes in your vaccine or it's something like HIV where it mutates quite a bit, another RNA virus mutates quite a bit, et cetera. Is that correct? Exactly right. Got it. Okay. The other thing that's good news is you know the part of the virus you care about. The part of the virus you care about is the so-called spike protein, mm. the surface glycoprotein. That, which every time they show these pictures on the media, you always see it. It's just sort of the crown, hence coronavirus. And then you see these little spike proteins coming out of it. So if that, that protein is responsible for binding to cells, mm. is responsible for the virus binding to cells, if you can prevent the virus from binding the cells, then you're going to prevent the virus from infecting the cell. Therefore, you're going to be protected. So that's the protein you're interested in. And we live in an era of recombinant DNA technology. We can, we can inoculate people with a variety of different strategies to induce an immune response against that one protein. Got it. So you could create like a messenger RNA vaccine that is translated into a protein and then ultimately you mount the immune response to the protein. So you don't even have to use killed virus or something like that, correct? Exactly. So there's basically four strategies. One of them, just what you said, you inoculate somebody with messenger RNA that's translated to the protein you're interested in, in this case, the spike protein, or you inoculate them with a DNA vaccine that then is transcribed to the messenger RNA that is then translated to the protein. Or you can inoculate them just with the protein, as we do with the hepatitis B vaccine or the human papillomavirus vaccine. Or you can inoculate them with a vector vaccine. So in other words, like 
the dengue vaccine or the Ebola vaccine, or actually it's, it's a different virus into which is cloned than the protein that codes for that surface protein. Oh, the, the gene that codes for the surface protein. So, so it's like a Trojan horse, a Trojan yeah. horse virus that's holding different uh, uh, um, genetic code that you use in those vector vaccines. Right, exactly. Got it. Mm-hmm. Here's the problem. Here's the thing that, that I worry about a little bit. And, and although I don't think it's going to be a problem, I think we're going to have to prove that it's a problem. Mm-hmm. Right now, Moderna is leading the pack. This is the, this is the vaccine that uh, Dr. Fauci talks about when he stands up in front of the, um, in front of the, the reporters during these conferences. Mm-hmm. The reason Dr. Fauci likes that vaccine is that it's, it's a safe vaccine. I mean, it's hard to believe that the messenger RNA would in any sense be harmful because it's so quickly degraded from the body. Mm. Tech, sec, secondly, you can really scale up messenger RNA very quickly. It's not hard. Um, a little trickier is the lipid, the complex lipid delivery system has not been scaled up. So it's going to take a while to scale that up. I can't imagine that scaled up in less than a year. Just, and that's just the delivery system. Right. So I think when Dr. Fauci says 12 to 18 months, that's amazingly optimistic. Mm. But the, the other thing that I think is important here is that um, when you present a protein to the immune system, I mean, the best way to get infected is to be the best. The best thing, the best way you know you're going to get a good immune response is to be naturally infected. The problem with natural infections is you, you have to pay the price of natural infection, which can be death, which is you know a high price. So, wait, 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 Paul. Let me interrupt you for a second. So you're telling me that my COVID nineteen party that I was ready to throw, or <laughs> we get a COVID patient and have them cough on all of us, is not the best strategy for immunization in this case? I think you're the only one now having a COVID party, but uh, I could be <laughs> an intentional COVID party. <laughs> right. Yeah, <that's> right. <laughs> exactly. Please continue. Sorry. So because because and the reason I interrupt you is that the, obviously the anti-vaccine people have been talking about natural immunity and having measles parties and, you know, uh, chicken pox parties as the best way to get immunity. And you're right. You'll get immunity. The problem is you pay the price, which is the complication, side effects and potential death from the disease. Exactly. Okay. So. So we have two protein vaccines, the hepatitis B vaccine and the HPV vaccine, and and they're great. They're safe. They induce an excellent immune response. The reason is that an HPV human papillomavirus is a good example. That's a virus-like particle. In other words, when the, the surface protein, which is called the L1 protein, is made in these yeast cells, that protein actually forms a pentamer, and then it forms an actual capsid. I mean, if you look at it, look, it, looks, like, it, it, it looks like the virus. If, mm. if you look at the HPV vaccine under the electron microscope, it looks like HPV. Mm. So you know that the confirmation or that the, the integrity of that protein is preserved on the surface. It looks, the protein in that vaccine looks exactly like it looks on the surface of that virus. That's critical. The same thing's true for the hepatitis B vaccine. That too is a so-called virus-like particle. That protein looks in that vaccine exactly like it looks in nature. That's good. I worry, and I think we all are, I think everybody who's involved in, in vaccine, this vaccine, is concerned about the fact that that's not going to be this protein. This protein, whether it's an mRNA vaccine or a DNA vaccine or a purified protein vaccine or a vectored vaccine, may not look exactly like it looks on the surface of the particle. Mm. And, and here's why that's a problem. Mm. Um, the goal of, it's, if this, if this, see, there's my fist. If this were the protein, um, there's the business end of the protein. We'll say it's this. You know, the part that binds to the virus. Okay, that's the business end. If you make antibodies to that business end, you will neutralize the virus. Mm. But you can also make antibodies to the not business end. 
you know, to just the, the part that doesn't bind to the virus. Those are so-called binding antibodies. Mm. So you have the neutralizing antibodies and you have the binding antibodies. You want to make sure that the, the quantity of neutralizing antibodies that you have and the persistence of those antibodies is much greater than the binding antibodies mm. because the binding antibodies can be dangerous and cause something called antibody-dependent enhancement. Ah, and, and we've seen that. I mean, we saw that with the dengue vaccine. The, the dengue vaccine, um, as uh, you may know, but the, the dengue vaccine in children who'd never been exposed to dengue before actually made them worse when they were then exposed to the natural virus, much worse. And some, you know, causing something called dengue hemorrhagic shock syndrome, children died uh. because they, they were children, vaccinated children who were less than nine years of age, who had never been exposed to dengue before, were more likely to die if they'd been vaccinated than if they hadn't been vaccinated. Oh, wow. Yeah, that's that, that's a problem, and yeah. that's that's that was because of antibody dependent enhancement. Because what happens is those binding antibodies they don't neutralize the virus; they just bind to it. And now we have on our cells um, mm. something called an FC receptor, mm. which then then can allow that antibody will bind the antibody and bring the virus into the cell. It's actually a more efficient way for the virus to enter the cell than otherwise. So what you're doing by creating all these binding antibodies is potentially causing um, this antibody-dependent enhancement, which could worsen the, the problem if you then were exposed to wild-type or natural virus. It makes it, That makes terrifying sense, Paul. Is that what happened with RSV immune enhancement in the, vi in the vaccine that was tried in the 60s? Yeah, so that, that was a little different. Mm -hmm. um, the, the RSV problem, was, so in the, in the 1960s, there was a vaccine that was made actually by NIH where they took respiratory sensitive virus, which causes thousands of children to die every year in this country, and killed it, mm -hmm. whole killed virus. The mm -hmm. same way we make the hepatitis A vaccine, the rabies vaccine, the polio vaccines, those were all whole killed viruses. What happened was that the RSV has a fusion protein on its surface. That's sort of how it it's one of the mechanisms by which it, it, it attaches to and, and uh, enters cells. That by killing it, you altered that fusion protein, mm -hmm. making it unlike what would normally be seen by if you were infected with the natural virus. So now you had this aberrant response to the fusion protein. Mm -hmm. The same thing happened with the measles vaccine in 1963. There was a whole killed measles vaccine that when you, if you got that vaccine and then you were naturally infected with measles, you were more likely to get pneumonia than if you'd never gotten that vaccine. Again, because of an aberrant fusion protein response. Mm -hmm. So not exactly the same thing, but, but again, it, 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 same thing in the sense so you're right. The same thing in the sense that you had critically altered that protein as compared to the way it normally would be seen in nature. So, so okay, excellent. So let me recap this with uh, regards to coronavirus. When you talk about HPV vaccine, when you talk about hepatitis vaccine, you're saying the proteins that are made there look enough like the virus that the antibody response that we mount really attacks the business end of that uh, protein as opposed to the non-business end, which leads to something called, you know, an antibody mediated actually enhancement of our, uh, of the viral entry into cells, which can be devastating. So the concern with coronavirus is if we, if we make this protein incorrectly, it doesn't look quite like the wild type. We could be making the problem worse with the vaccine if we're not careful about that. Did I get that right? Exactly. And so the trick is, the key word that you just said was careful. I mean, you need to make sure that you feel comfortable with this vaccine before you give it to tens of millions, and because this is a worldwide pandemic, hundreds of millions of people. So, so how do you do that? Mm. Typically with vaccines, um, what you do is you do an efficacy trial. The only time you don't do an efficacy trial to get a vaccine license would be like something with the meningococcal serogroup B vaccine. 
there's two. There's Bexero and Trumemba. Those never had an efficacy trial. The reason being that there's only a few hundred cases of meningococcal serogroup B disease in the United States. So you really, it's not practical to do an efficacy trial. You have to do hundreds and hundreds of thousands of people, which is not going to happen. But you had a clear immunological correlate. You knew that if you had a certain level of antibodies directed against meningococcus serogroup B, that you would be protected because of decades of research that showed you that. Mm. So both those vaccines were licensed without ever doing an efficacy trial. Mm. That can't be true here. You don't know what the immunological correlate of protection is. Ah. Or said another way, you don't know the specific antibody response you're looking at that tells you you're going to be protected against this disease. So, so you could look theoretically at convalescent sera of blood of people who've gotten better and say, okay, what IgG, what IgM are they producing that correlates to their uh, response to the virus though, right? Couldn't you just look at that and be like, oh, okay, if we have those, and then they can't be reinfected, and we do some quick study on that. Couldn't we figure it out quickly, or is it more complex than that? It's more complex than that. Of you, course, you need to, for all all the the antibody studies I've seen published, they're just what you you said. You know, we have total antibody immunoglobulin M, immunoglobulin G. What I haven't seen published is neutralizing antibody. Even just that, you know, mm-hmm. is the, is the immune response that you're generating from natural infection neutralizing to the virus? I I, I would imagine that would have to be true. But it would, I'd love to see a paper published that says that. Mm-hmm. Uh, but I'm sure that's true, just because from you know from human coronaviruses. So again, but, the distinction between neutralizing and say binding antibodies, right? So neutralizing binding to the business end, uh, binding antibodies, binding to something, some other part of the virus, some other immune response. Right, so all you're yeah. looking at now is binding antibodies. Yeah. And when you see IgG, IgM, those are lives of tests generally that look for binding antibodies. Right. So that, that's all you know now. So I think what, what has to happen is if we're going to be doing this quickly, and we're doing it quickly, I think that um, I, I haven't seen animal model studies published on Moderna's vaccine. I haven't seen that. All I know is that we did in Washington state a 45-person study that involved adults between 18 and 55 years of age who were divided into three groups of 15. One got the lowest dose of messenger RNA that would then presumably be uh, um, translated to a protein that would induce antibodies. The second group just, I think, just finished getting the middle dose. And now we're doing a higher dose. Moderna is already talking about moving to phase two this spring. Well, it is this spring. And so I'm going to assume that they're, they're, I would have to believe that they would do thousands of people. Once they, they're clear that they have a dose, and they should do, I think, larger dose ranging trials just to make sure that's the right dose, to make sure that they, they do a trial that represents the American public. So do you know that, you, that the trial that you've done represents the, the different percentage of African-Americans, et cetera, in this, that, 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 so you, then when you give it to the American public, you know that you've tested a reasonable percentage of the American public before you do that. Right. That, that you at least do that. And then you have to do an efficacy study. You have to, to make sure that you don't come up in any sense with this problem of antibody-dependent enhancement. I don't think that's going to happen, but it is a theoretical concern. And and I imagine that, that the, the best way to do an efficacy trial would be in healthcare workers. They're, they're the ones who are most likely to be exposed, either the most frequently or in the largest quantity of virus. And so they would be, I think, the ones who would have to do this. But it has to be a placebo-controlled trial. So do you see, here's a group of people who got the vaccine who then were exposed to the virus. Here's a group of people who, got the vac- who didn't get the vaccine who were exposed to the virus to make sure that the group that was vaccinated don't do worse when they were exposed to the virus as compared to the group that wasn't vaccinated, which is what happened for a subset of patients that got the dengue vaccine. So, and, and okay, this is very important to reiterate. In order to study that effectively, it has to be randomized, it has to be blinded, it has to be placebo controlled, which means you can't, as a, as a member of that trial, say I'm a healthcare professional, I can't sign up and go, 
I want the vaccine because that's going to introduce all kinds of bias just in terms of I'm self-selecting to get the vaccine, which means maybe I think I'm at higher risk. Maybe something else is going on. So you would have to randomly allocate vaccine or placebo vaccine to the groups, study enough of them because they're at higher risk for getting the disease and then see if it's efficacious. That's what you're saying more or less? Yes. And I think that in this era uh, or this time of panic, terror, that people would say in some ways what you, you said to some extent, which is, hey, I want the vaccine. Right. I mean, I, I'm scared about getting and dying from this virus. I want the vaccine. But know this, the history of medicine is littered with tragedy. And you just want to make sure, again, I don't think this is going to happen, but I, I do think we need to prove that it doesn't happen before we give this vaccine to tens of millions or hundreds of millions, because uh, you know, you'll do the best you can pre-licensure. I'd like to think we'll do tens of thousands of people pre-licensure, as it's done for most vaccines. I mean, the, the our vaccine, the Rotatec vaccine, was tested in 70,000 babies pre-licensure. The Rotarix vaccine in 60,000 plus pre-licensure. The, the HPV vaccine in 30,000 people pre-licensure. I'd like to think that this vaccine is tested in tens of thousands, which doesn't prove that you don't have a problem, but at least makes you a little more comfortable that you don't have a problem. I mean, right. Maurice Hillman, who I think was the father of modern vaccines, said it best, I never breathe a sigh of relief until the first three million doses are out there. I think that's always going to be true. You're never really sure until it's out there. There's yeah. always risks and benefits, and but you want to at least put yourself in the best position possible before you give this vaccine to tens or hundreds of millions of people. Yeah. You know, and, and, and relating to that, <clears throat> let's say you develop a vaccine in record time and you're maybe you're pushing the limits, right? And you're thinking, well, post-marketing surveillance is going to catch some things and hopefully we're as close as we can. (laughs) Would you, Paul, advocate that people be tested with ELISA to see if they've already been exposed to the virus before getting the, uh, the vaccine? Or would you vaccinate even those individuals, assuming that you're comfortable with the safety profile? I think what would happen, um, is that, that, when they do this trial as an efficacy trial, I think they would initially take on only people who've never been exposed to the virus. Right. But I, I do think I'd like to think in the run up to that trial that you would that you would give this vaccine to people who were seropositive, meaning had already been exposed, people who were seronegative had never been exposed. It's all part of the safety workup. I mean, when we did our vaccine, the rotavirus vaccine, you know, we started in doing our safety testing as we got to progressively larger safety and immunogenicity trials, we initially started in seropositive adults. Mm. And then we, we worked our way up to seronegative adults and seropositive adolescents and seronegative adolescents, all for a vaccine that was going to be put in babies. Mm. And then we worked our way down to babies. But you know, when we did dose ranging trials, meaning trying to figure out which dose this was, that was the best dose, you know, that, that, that was thousands of people. So I mean, maybe I'm a bad sport because it took, you know, 26 years for us to develop a vaccine. But I, I do think that, that it is important to develop this vaccine quickly. But it also, it's also important to make sure that you've, you've looked as closely as you can to make sure that you're not going to deal with problems down the road. And, and I just worry that in this, in this era of, of panic here, that we, that we not only we as, as researchers, but we as a public would be willing to accept something that hadn't been thoroughly tested. Mm. And that makes perfect sense because if you imagine you're inoculating healthy people en masse in a population, if you have a 0.5% complication or mortality rate from the vaccine, that is pretty much, you know, about half as bad as being infected with the wild type, right? If everybody got infected. So it's just a magnification of numbers if it's not safe. So so the, the idea that, listen, you've been through this vaccine 
development process, phase one, phase two, phase three, efficacy dosing trials, large numbers of people, safety, then putting it out and breathing the sigh after three million doses, all those things you're talking about. In this case, people are talking about compressing that into a record, maybe unattainable timeline because we're so scared of this virus, which is, is causing havoc around the country, right? But the question is, could we make the problem worse if we overdo it? Or do you, I mean, what do you think is option B if, in other words, would you just like to see it more carefully studied in a quicker time frame? I and mean, what's the solution to that? I think that if you find that there's, let's say with messenger RNA vaccine, that there is this problem with antibody dependent enhancement. And again, I'd like to say, I don't think that's gonna happen, but I just think we need to make sure it doesn't. Mm -hmm. You're, it's gonna be hard. I mean, you, you now know that the purified protein approach, whether it's it's with mRNA or DNA or with, with purified protein itself or with the vector vaccine is not, is a problem. And so so another option, so dengue is a good example, because with the dengue vaccine, what they, what the, it was Sanofi actually initially made the, the, the first dengue vaccine, the only currently licensed dengue vaccine. The way they made that was they took the yellow fever vaccine, mm. the yellow fever, so-called 17D vaccine. That's the, that's the yellow fever vaccine. And then they took, they, they took out a region uh, and then inserted this, this pre-envelope and envelope region for dengue. So now you had, for, and they did it for each of the four dengue serotypes. You basically had four yellow fever vaccines into which was cloned this, this gene that coded for the surface protein of the four dengue serotypes. And that's the, the business end that, of, the, of the virus, yeah? Exactly. Dengue, that, yeah. That, well, it's the business, it's, it's, the, it's the binding it's the, the binding, binding protein. protein. Yeah, yeah. yeah. It's, it's the cell attachment protein. Got it. But, but what happened was, is because it was a yellow fever uh, vaccine as, as a, the, the uh, backbone, I think that the confirmation of that dengue protein wasn't exactly as it would have been on dengue. Now, so how do you solve that problem? And I think that problem's been solved. I think it was solved by Takeda. What Takeda did was they took dengue type 2, weakened it in the laboratory. So now it can't cause disease. They weakened dengue type 2 in the laboratory. Then with the, And that, that was the dengue type 2 vaccine. Then they took that backbone and then inserted into it, you know, type one, three, or four. So now you had four strains, which were all dengue two, except in, inserted into that was the, the uh, surface protein for one, three, or four, so four strains. And see there, because it was a dengue background, now the confirmation was much more like it would have been seen on dengue virus, right? And so then when they did a trial, and this was published in the New England Journal of Medicine recently, when they then did a trial, what they found out was they didn't have the problem with antibody-dependent enhancement. They solved the problem. So were that to be a problem here, you could make the same argument that you would use a, say, a um, attenuated coronavirus or something where even if it was an attenuated human coronavirus, something where the, the expression of that surface protein was very similar to what would be seen in the natural virus. It's, it's hard. I mean, I, I think when I hear like there was recently a couple researchers, one in Boston, one in Pittsburgh, who's, who were working in the laboratory, said, you know, if mice said, I think we've got the vaccine. That is a healthy disrespect for what it takes to make a vaccine. <laughs> I mean, the as an academic, I think I'm allowed to say that. Yeah. But there's, there's sort of the research, then there's the research, then there's the research development, then there's implementation. I mean, it gets harder and harder. When you, when you get to the research of development, I mean, Mice aren't men. I think that probably David Weiner, who's my favorite uh, vaccine researcher at Penn, says mice lie and monkeys exaggerate. I think that's exactly right. Um, you know, when you, the research and development is you have to do proof of concept studies. You have to do dose ranging studies. You have to write, write buffering agents, write stabilizing agents, the right vial. You have to do real-time stability studies. And then comes the hard part, which is you have to mass produce it in a way that is absolutely consistent from one batch to the other. I mean, these aren't small molecule drugs. This isn't amoxicillin where you 
can just say, yes, this is 50 milligrams in the tablet. The process is the product, and you have to make sure the process is the same all the way along. And that's hard. Uh, Paul, why is science so hard? Why is it the tiny changes in the conformation of these proteins can have massive downstream effects on the efficacy of the actual vaccine? Why aren't things just black and white? Well, because that's the nature of the world, right? So then the question is, I'll throw back at you, it, it, <laughs> it may be if I'm reading between the lines here, which aren't, isn't a between the lines, it's what you're saying. This is not as easy as we might be thinking it is based on what people are saying. What should we do? I mean, obviously we continue working on the vaccine full court press. Is there another approach to attenuating this disease outbreak that we obviously have to simultaneously work on? Is it antivirals? Is it, what, what, what would you do in this case? Well, certainly, what we're doing, which is, is we are studying antivirals, whether it's remdesivir or flavipiravir or this hydroxychloroquine, which I would be surprised if it works, but right. it's testable. Um, but we're doing that. Um, we certainly know that, that for some patients who have so-called cytokine storm or ARDS, that they do make large quantities of interleukin-6, so there is a monoclonal antibody directed against that called tocilizumab, so that's good. But I think I think what we need to do I think Dr. Fauci's right. I think that, that by picking mRNA vaccine, he's picked the one that's probably the easiest to scale up in terms of the mRNA itself. I do think that lipid um, delivery system is not so easy, but again, doable, um, especially if everybody cooperates. If all the, the manufacturers cooperate to do they, what they can to fill. Even in with multi-dose files, I think the filling would take a year, but in any case, mm. the, 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 so that's it. And just make sure that to the, to the best degree you can, which is to say tens of thousands of people, that you have obviated the, the question that some people are concerned about, the so-called antibody-dependent enhancement. And when you have, mm. and you put it into people, you'll do post-marketing or post-license or whatever you want to call it, surveillance, you know, to make sure it's not there. The other thing I just hope happens, I hope they don't bypass the FDA. I mean, I hope the FDA gets a chance to look at, at this. And I'm, I'm not speaking on behalf of the FDA in any sense, although I am on the FDA Vaccine Advisory Committee. So were this to go to the FDA, our committee would see it. Right. I'm, to, so I'm not speaking on behalf of the committee. I'm not speaking on behalf of the FDA. This is just me personally speaking. But I do think that it would be of value to make sure that it comes to the FDA, uh, in part because that's probably the best chance for the public, actually, it's an open meeting, for the public to see those data and mm -hmm. to look at the data for, the, for themselves as well so they can see what everybody's doing. Mm -hmm. uh, I, I, those insights are really something that you don't hear in the soundbite-related press that we're seeing people talking about this stuff. So that's extremely helpful, Paul, to hear from somebody who's actually developed, invented and developed these vaccines and sits on committees that, uh, that looks at them. So that's super helpful. Any other thoughts around vaccine before I ask you some other questions? No, I, th I think, you know, what I like about vaccine, the movie Contagion, which appears to be the most downloaded movie now, what was the hero, who was the hero of that movie? Vaccines were the hero of that movie. Yeah. And, and what I, Ian Lipkin was, I think, the medical advisor for that. And so at least on that movie, it took six months to make a vaccine, which, you know, was better than the movie Outbreak, where I think it took an hour. So, so it's, <laughs> this is a little better. Um, that was still a little more out. Also, Elliot Gould is a virologist. I'm sorry. I just never saw that. But that was just me. <laughs> Maybe they should have just cast you. That would have been amazing. You know, you know, a Dr. Drew apparently was cast in Sharknado 4. So, you know, there's a precedent. Uh, <laughs> now, speaking of Dr. Drew, let's ask a question here. So um, 
you and I have had conversations about, okay, what's the best approach from a public health standpoint to, to manage this outbreak? Is it locking everything down? Is it putting everybody in quarantine? Is it uh, closing the schools? Is it that? And, and we had a previous conversation where we talked about some of these things from a speculation standpoint. Maybe there's a more targeted way. Maybe we have to get the initial outbreak under control since we didn't test correctly. How's your thinking, has your ch- thinking evolved on this as we're seeing what's happening in New York and all of that? Uh, or do you have other thoughts on how we're handling this currently? Well, I think the, the lessons from you know China and South Korea and Singapore and Japan were locking down works. I mean, China, if you believe those numbers, and I, I don't believe the, uh, the case numbers. I, I, the, let's assume the death numbers are probably also low, but I can't believe they're that low. Um, they stopped their, their, the spread of that virus. I mean, I'm sure there are tens, if not hundreds of millions of people in, in China, a population of 1.4 billion people that are still susceptible to this virus. Yeah. I can't believe everybody is now immune to this virus. That doesn't make sense. So um, yet they were able to stop it. So I think the lockdown, you know, shelter in place strategy, whatever you want to call it, is a value. And I really wish we'd done it across the country right at the beginning and hard stop. I'm not sure that we had to close schools. I mean, Singapore never closed schools initially. I think they did more recently, but they, right. they and still were able to get on top of this outbreak. So, and the CDC initially also never recommended closing schools. Right. I didn't think it would affect the epidemiology. But that aside, I think locking down did matter. We unfortunately are doing it sequentially, not all at once. So we're getting these yeah. sort of waves that come up. Rolling lockouts. Time. Yeah. yeah. Oh, that's right. It's like a rolling thing. And so... I mean, a friend, we're one of the people, my sister's son is living here with us now in this in this little communal home we have, but our shelter in place communal mm-hmm. home. But he, he lives, works in New York City and he, he's, his friends are sending him, you know, pictures of the subway that are packed with passengers. Mm-hmm. So they still haven't really, really locked down. I, I do think it would help were we to have a federal government that actually had a policy that was made clear, that, that it, there was a, a very quick directive early on that, that we needed to lock down to stop this based on what we'd learned from all these other countries, but that didn't happen. Yeah, yeah, so the, the, the horse is out of the barn a bit now. And uh, the idea about school lockdown is interesting because like you said, the, the Koreans did not lock the school, or Singapore, Singapore, Singapore did not lock schools down initially. They're doing it now, I think, because they're seeing resurgence in cases from returning travelers, correct? Yeah. Uh, and, and so what are, you, what are your thoughts on this whole mask debacle, right? CDC saying, don't use masks. Surgeon General saying, don't use masks. Public, talking about the public. Now saying, oh, go ahead and wrap your face in whatever cloth you have. Uh, I have thoughts on this, but I'm curious what yours are. If, if, if you're in the hospital and you're walking into the room with somebody who has this infection or somebody who has tuberculosis and is coughing or has extremely drug drug-resistant tuberculosis, even worse than this coughing, you don't just wear this surgical mask. You wear the N95 respirator. So you have complete seal over your nose and mouth, so you're not going to be able to catch this. Similarly, if you have the infection that you're worried, that, you're, that you think could, that, that could spread and could hurt people, again, you should wear that mm. respirator, frankly, just not leave your house. But, but the surgical mask, um, you can breathe in and out on the side of that, so it's not perfect. Also, it starts to get wet, which makes it a little more porous as well. So I think the, the, the downside of the surgical mask is that the biggest downside is the people who are mildly infected think, well, now I'm protecting others by wearing the surgical mask. That's a bad idea. Mm. Um, I, I wonder where people are. Uh, first of all, the, 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 these personal protective equipment and masks, et cetera, are not readily available. I, you know, the, the hospitals are having trouble getting these masks. I'm not sure how the public's going to get them. So we're not supposed to wear these cloth bandanas or cloth masks. I, I, um, I think the, the best thing you can say about it is it reminds you that you should try and steer clear of people. I'm not sure how well it 
would work. Yeah, you know, my main concern with this is that people are going to get a false sense of security. They're going to touch their face more because they're going to be fiddling with the bandana. They're going to grab the bandana by the front, which is potentially covered with whatever filth they've been breathing in. And uh, they're really not going to believe the government. They're going to try to get real masks, which is going to make a war shortage for healthcare professionals without really a lot of science saying, actually, in the wild, this actually helps. Like you can look at all kinds of, you know, raw uh, particle data and this and that, but in the, in the wild does this something like, oh, well, in Japan and in Asia, they wear these things and look, they're controlling it better. Dude, they're doing everything different than we did in the beginning. So it's really impossible to say this. Now I see people walking around with cloth bandanas, talking on their phone like this, touching the, you know, the phone to their face. And I'm like, this is not, that's not how this works. That's not how any of this works. So that's my concern. I understand why they're doing it, but I have, I have a lot of deep reservations about telling the public stuff like this, um, as opposed to just, hey, stay home, social distance, don't get on a packed subway. That's dumb. The, the ship comes into the harbor, the USS Comfort, don't crowd together with a bunch of people going, look, it's the ship that's gonna save us, breathing in each other's face at a ratio of this. How, has your thinking of how this thing is transmitted uh, changed at all? Well, how do you think the thing is actually the predominance of transmission? How's it occurring? Is it air, is it fomite, is it, what is it? Yeah, so I, th I think it's respiratory droplets and fomites. Yeah. I think those are the two big. So washing hands, cleaning services, you know, trying to maintain some distance, I think that's all of value. And I think that's how, countries were able to stop its spread. So I think it is stoppable. Yeah. I just think, I just was hopeful, like, you know, sort of uh, uh, last time we talked, that, that I, I felt people were now going to be sheltering in place, that that was going to happen much more uniformly. And I'm not sure that really did happen because what we're seeing now with, say, the, I think the 8,500 deaths we had as of this morning in the United States, that's more reflective of what we were doing three weeks ago, right? Because right. it has an incubation period of five to 10 days, and if you get sick, then you get sicker, then you get intubated, then you die. I mean, that takes a few weeks. So I think this is what we're seeing is what we did three weeks ago. So I keep thinking, when did we really take this seriously? Because uh -huh. I think then, three weeks later is when we'll start to see coming off the curve because we're not coming off the curve. I mean, if we had, we had a thousand deaths on March 26th. Well, March 28th, two days later, we had 2,000 deaths. That's a doubling of two days. That's a two-day doubling period. That's really fast. Then by April the 1st, we had 4,000 cases. So that's a four-day doubling period. And I was hoping that that was a trend. We we're going to go from two to four to six because as Angela Merkel said, Give me a 10-day doubling period, and I think that the hospital discharges will will uh, exceed hospital admissions. I think that's probably right. See, there's mm -hmm. a country, actually, that tries to do things like come up with policies and rules to help people understand how it is that we're doing instead of simply setting arbitrary dates. Let's do April 12th, Easter. Let's do April 30th. Well, you know, just let's do June 10th, according to the governor of Virginia. Let, you know, let's have a rule to figure out how we're doing this. But so today it's 8,500, which means, again, a doubling period of four days. So we're not... We're still at four-day doubling. We, we, Germany is at five, five-and-a-half-day doubling. Japan or China, Italy is at a, uh, an eight-day doubling. So they're actually starting to come off the come curve. Come off the curve, yeah. Yeah. Wow. So, yeah, and this makes perfect sense. And what we're seeing, you know, there were some early reports that the Bay Area is bending the curve because they were quite quick in lockdown. And I'm here, and, you know, our public health officials are pretty hardcore. And I think there's a political side always, right? So the, the, the more liberal Bay Area is more into, hey, let's have a, a government actual policy that that sets behavior, right? Whereas, you know, in other parts, it's like, oh, no, heck no, we're America. And so it's an interesting experiment to see from a health standpoint, what's a more effective thing. Now, I actually think when I'm talking to my hospital colleagues, they're preparing for a massive surge because we have not, I don't think yet, bent the curve here. So, uh, but 
But I think we have a good chance if, you know, when I walk out in the street, I don't see people in each other's faces. I see Home Depot staggering people to enter the, the thing. I, I, you know, people seem to be behaving reasonably well where I am, which is encouraging. I don't know how it's going in the rest of the country. Yeah. Yeah, we'll see. I mean, I, I um, Philadelphia is not too bad, actually. It's not, uh, you know, I work at Children's Hospital. Philadelphia is not bad at all. I think we have the lowest census we've had in ever since I've been there for the last 30 plus years because, first of all, this is not really a, a disease that seriously affects children. So we yeah. see kids come to the ED, emergency department, but not into our intensive care unit. So, you know, I want to wrap this up with one thing that I want to talk about, and this is kind of a preface to what you had worked on prior to all the COVID stuff, which is a book on overtreatment and about how a lot of what we do in medicine really doesn't help. In this setting where we've shut down a lot of outpatient and elective stuff, we've gone to telehealth, we're seeing, I'm, I, I'm not sure we're seeing an uptick in mortality or bad outcomes from less interaction with you know, uh, elective medicine. So it'll be interesting to see kind of as a grand experiment what it is that we've been doing that doesn't help at all and could have been scrapped how we can get paid to actually do the things that do help and transform our system. You know, I've been going on rants about the administrative technocracy and how we're paid to do dumb stuff and how we've been led, you know, and just doctors have been, as a calling, have been destroyed, but we have to do our part to go, well, what is it that we do that actually works and let's do that. Yeah, it's interesting. It's in the last three weeks, typically the U.S. has about 55 total deaths, 55,000 total deaths a week, total. And I'm not talking about COVID or flu, I'm talking about total deaths, 55,000 a week. Over the last three weeks, it's been 45,000. <laughs> we have 10,000 fewer deaths a week. Why? We're not driving. And the homicide rate has gone down. So that's it. Just stay inside, never leave your house, and you'll live longer. <laughs> you know, and I don't mean to laugh at so many deaths, but I'm gonna say this as a statistic. This is a remark, what you just said is one of the most remarkable things that has come out of this is that we've lowered our death rate in the United States, at least in the short term. Now, we've also destroyed the economy. We've also destroyed livelihoods. So that's gonna have ripple effects that may increase the death rate long-term. But there is this is a grand unintentional experiment, the likes of with which America or the world has never seen. And there is a part of me that thinks that there'll be a silver lining that we figure out some things that we've been long overdue to figure out. I mean, um, so hopefully that's true. What do you think, Paul? Yeah, no, I think we're I think we're going to look back on this a couple of years from now, and there's clearly going to be heroes and villains in this whole story. I just don't think we quite know who they are yet. <laughs> it's you and me. We're both the heroes and the villains, Paul. <laughs> Let's just own it and you know make the get license the movie rights. Um, I want Vin Diesel to play me though, because <laughs> I mean it just just go figure, you know. Uh, Paul, dude. Uh, it's always great to reconnect and talk. I think we should try to do this regularly as information evolves if you're down for it. I'm, I'm down for it. Sounds uh, like great, like it, great fun. Oh, it's great. And uh, you're such a, a treasure and a resource, and I love talking. So hit me up anytime. In the meantime, ZPAC, do me a favor. Share this video because this is straight up science that you're not going to get on sound bites on the news. Please become a supporter of the show. It really helps us out. Stay safe. Keep watching our videos about how we can help other healthcare professionals stay safe and have a voice. Because when this is done, if we, Paul, if we lose this opportunity to transform medicine, I will never be able to sleep again. So this is our chance. Uh, never let a good crisis go to waste. I think this is a pivot for us and the nation. All right, guys, I love you. We out. Peace. Hey, it's Dr. Z. Thanks for getting through the whole episode. That's a huge accomplishment. <laughs> and so at this point, I just got to ask you for a few favors because it just helps us so much if you leave a review on your favorite podcast platform and subscribe.
it, it just really helps the algorithms to get this message out to others. The second thing is email me, hello at zdogmd.com. I get all these emails personally. I can't respond to them all, but I need to hear your voice because especially on podcast, we don't have a comment section. And I want to hear how this episode affected you, what you'd like to hear in the future, what you think we got wrong, what we think we got right, anything, anything, or just say hi. So that's really powerful. And the third thing is financially, it helps us a lot to support the show in any way you can. And if you go to zdogmd.com forward slash supporters, you can join our supporter tribe on your favorite platform, YouTube, Facebook, Instagram, wherever. What that will get you on those platforms is live shows with me that are exclusive for supporters and access to our Zoom meetings where we talk about awakening realization and we share with each other our own experience. It's a powerful group effect. It's a community, really. And we support and love each other and share, again, through our own experience, how we're waking up. So, and that that ripples out into systems, into transforming healthcare and education and government. So it st- really starts with us. So join us there if you can. Again, zdogmd.com forward slash supporters. And I'm so grateful to have you with us.